Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Because of that one platform philosophy, we're able to take features that we've built with one merchant and they immediately become available to our entire merchant base. We've avoided having bespoke implementations of our platform for particular customers or particular geographies. That was Brian Damier, the president of North America for Agin, and he is our special guest this week. This is episode 47 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. Hey, before we get started, if you happen to office in Houston, Austin, or North Texas, please check out Fuse Workspace, where their mission is to help others do more. Check them out at fuseworkspace.com. Okay, back to the show. Brian is from Wisconsin and went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He originally studied education. Eventually, he got into fraud prevention, which led him into payments. Agin is a payments technology company that empowers some of the world's largest brands. They focus on technology and online global players, in-store and unified commerce payments, and platforms and marketplaces. They have approximately 1,500 employees globally and roughly 200 employees in North America. Agin's one-platform philosophy their global aspect, and their direct connections to the networks are their true differentiators and provides a unique value proposition to their customers. Brian provides some great advice for those just starting their careers in payments. We've got a great episode this week, so let's get started. Hi, Brian. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Yeah, happy to. I'm from the uh, fine state of Wisconsin. So I uh, come from the Midwest, uh, went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And actually, I got a background in education. I always joke that no one gets a degree in payments. So I originally studied education, started out in support functions, which brought me into the really exciting world of fraud prevention, which tangentially got me into the area of payments. So started out in the Midwest, growing up in corn country, and now I'm here in California empowering merchants with payments technology. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's discuss Adyen. So tell our audience what Adyen does. Yeah. So Adyen is a payments technology company. We empower some of the world's largest brands to process payments all around the world. I like to say that we're a technology company doing bank things in an industry of a lot of banks trying to do technology things. We have three main focus areas. The first would be to focus on technology and online players going all around the world. Think of Microsoft. Microsoft has dozens of different product units across many, many different countries. And in each of those countries and in those business units, they have different payments needs. Next to that, we have in-store and unified commerce payments. How do you merge the channels between traditional point of sale, online, in-app, which is becoming even more important under COVID? And we're working with really great merchants like Subway, for example, to do that. And then finally, there's the, the newer area of platforms and marketplaces where we empower platforms like GoFundMe and eBay with not only the best payments technology in the world, but also onboarding of subsellers onto their platforms and the facilitation of payouts to them. 
So in short, we're a technology player and empowering some of the world's largest merchants all around the world. Okay. And how big is the company? So in terms of employees, we just hit around the 1500 employee mark. Our headquarters is in Amsterdam. We're actually a Dutch founded company, but we have offices in over 20 cities around the world. And our headcount is really significant, a few hundred folks here in North America. Last year, we processed over a quarter of a trillion dollars in transactions on the adding platform for our merchants. Okay. And how do you go to market? Is it direct sales, partnerships, or a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. Our bread and butter is in the enterprise space, working with really large brands with complicated payments opportunities around multiple geographies. And that's generally a really direct relationship where we're working with them to unpack opportunities with sort of payments at their core. But increasingly, as we focus on the mid-market segment of merchants, as well as just the overall partner ecosystem, especially in the retail space, we're finding more and more that we're working with that partnership ecosystem to introduce merchants and bring the power of the agent platform to them. And you mentioned COVID, so I'm going to ask about that. How has that affected your business? Yeah, great question. First, I would start by just saying that it's it's impacted everybody this year, both on a personal basis, but then also for any business. At the height of COVID, let's say when, when all the lockdowns started, we saw two really pronounced changes. One was in the travel and airline sector. We process for a, a large number of online travel agencies and airlines around the world. We obviously saw uh, the volume for those merchants go down significantly. And we also saw in-store volume go down as well as lockdowns happen. Very interestingly, though, is that at the same moment, especially for retailers, we saw a substantial 60% increase in overall e-commerce volume for those merchants on the platform, which meant that as consumers were staying at home and stores were closed, they were moving online. And what we found is when we looked at the cohort analysis of those consumers, many of them were net new. They were previously hesitant consumers that weren't yet focusing in online interactions, but they were being forced to effectively by the pandemic. So what have we been focusing on during this? First and foremost, we're just here to be a very good partner for our merchant partners who are going through a difficult time. This is important in particular for the travel segment. But then as retailers have been opening up, They've been focusing on two things. First and foremost, taking those digital channels and beefing them up. During COVID, a channel for a retailer that might have been maybe 5 to 10% of their revenue is suddenly half or even more than half in some cases. So focus on bringing excellence into that channel for them, but then also bringing touch-free and contactless payments into the in-store environment. Adjun's entire range of terminals is already contactless NFC enabled with tap to pay, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, etc. But then also next to that, we've been launching QR code driven flows with our merchants so that consumers can avoid touching the terminal entirely. We've been doing sort of homegrown QR code driven flows with our merchants, but then we're also finding that our, our payment method partners like PayPal and Venmo, as well as Affirm and others, are starting to bring QR codes into the fold. So we've been focusing a lot on basically adapting with our merchants during this really challenging time. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned that a lot of the new business online has been net new customers. Do you have any research or any indication, are those older customers or or are there a different demographic that has decided suddenly that online is... I won't say their only choice, but in some cases, their only choice. Do you have any idea what that demographic looks like? 
Yeah, I mean, how can we get past anecdotes, right? I can give you an anecdote. My mom never bought groceries online before, and during the pandemic, she's only doing it that way. And I think the million-dollar question is, are they going to continue with that behavior, or will they go back to their old ways? And I think the assumption will be it will be somewhere in between. But to get out of the anecdotal world and get into numbers, Adjin actually did an analysis and a survey with consumers. 41% of consumers said that they're going to shop online more than they did after the pandemic than before the pandemic. And to your question, Greg, when we look at the demographics within that, 58% of millennials said they would, 37% of Gen X, and 30% of baby boomers. So a third of baby boomers said that they will buy more online after the pandemic than when they did before. And I think when we look at the actual cohort information, as stores are opening up, there is an equalization of then more equality between these channels. But we're finding that the e-commerce spike that happened is sustaining. And we're finding that it's a demographically rich set of consumers. So I think the assumption going forward is that Entire new groups of people have been trained to expect online interactions, whether it's online at home, in-app, or on your mobile device, or what have you. And therefore, merchants are taking those channels and they're really asking themselves, okay, if this is going to be a third of my business or more going forward when it used to be a minority channel, what do I need to do to invest in that? And we're finding that payments is really crucial to that. How can you make the payments experience via these digital channels absolutely seamless across all those demographic groups? And that's where Agin is really taking a consultative approach with our merchants and helping them out as they go out of immediate reaction to COVID and crisis mode into now looking to the future and asking themselves, okay, if these trends are going to stick around, what do we need to do? And, And that's where Agin comes in. Okay. So we talked a lot just then about data and you had mentioned data earlier. How important is data to your value prop with your customers? It's incredibly important. And I would say the most important trend that we're seeing is not only on having a data-rich platform, and Agent is one of those, but also having a channel agnostic platform from a data perspective. You have a lot of players in the space who over time grew via acquisition. They bought a platform to do e-commerce. They have their traditional platform for in-store. And, you know, they're juggling these different geographical and channel platforms. And because of that, it's really hard for these other providers to sort of equalize that data. Agent has been channel agnostic from day one. So let's say, for example, that you interact with a quick service restaurant brand. And, and you're really variable in terms of the ways that you interact. You, you have your credit card stored in their app. Maybe you do in-app order ahead. Sometimes you order at their kiosk, at a terminal, sometimes at the counter. Then maybe sometimes you're just on your work browser and you do it online there. What we're able to do for those merchants is recognize that card across all of those different sessions as the same card with a channel agnostic token. And this is incredibly important during this time of channel proliferation for these merchants. Let's take, for example, the example I used, which was quick service restaurants, you know, They've been spending tremendous amount of money on their kiosk and in-app flows, putting a lot of marketing dollars into driving consumers to these channels. But if you're not able to track the consumer behavior as they moved from walking up to the desk or going through the drive-through to these other channels and asking yourself, okay, is their ticket size more and is it worth the marketing money that we're pushing to those consumers? It's very difficult to make those business decisions. So 
when it comes to data, the most important thing that we're doing to enable our merchants is providing them with channel agnostic, what we would call unified commerce data so that they can make those business decisions. And what would you say truly differentiates your company from those competitors out there? The things that would differentiate Agin from our competitors are first and foremost that we have a one platform philosophy. We run our platform around the world across half a dozen data centers, right, across many different geographies, all with direct connections to the card networks and to payment methods. And we do that with one platform. So with one integration, one set of reconciliation reports, one contract and one relationship, we have retailers in particular that have gone from 40, 50 plus partners across different geographies, and they've consolidated that down to a partnership with us. And because of that one platform philosophy, we're able to take features that we've built with one merchant and they immediately become available to our entire merchant base. We've avoided having bespoke implementations of our platform for particular customers or for particular geographies. So for example, when we built Alipay and WeChat Pay at the terminal for one of our high-end retail clients a few years ago, it immediately became available to our entire merchant base ahead of Singles Day, a really important day for Chinese consumers. Next to that, I would also then just say our global aspect. We're in many, many different geographies. We offer over 250 local payment methods. These are non-card payment methods into payment methods like boletos in Brazil. You've got buy now, pay later payment methods. You've got bank transfers, which are very common in countries like Germany and the Netherlands. Alongside our really unique direct connections to Visa, MasterCard, and the other major card networks around the world. So you take that global aspect, that local knowledge with local payment methods, and put it in one platform, and we have a very unique proposition when compared to our competitors. Okay. Where do you see our industry heading, say, in the next two to three years? Yeah, I think in the next two to three years, it's going to be digital enablement and a continued tailwind of digital enablement. I think when you look at what everybody thought was going to happen over the next five years, it's suddenly fast-forwarded because of COVID, right? I think everybody thought it was going to be a slow but steady slog of more and more consumers getting more and more comfortable with e-commerce. Well, when everything locked down in March and you were able to buy things, you were either doing it online or you weren't doing it at all. But just because a lot happened in 2020 doesn't mean that that's not going to continue. So the next two to three years is going to be about more digital enablement. But that should not be seen as, you know, you have the winners and the losers. The in-store experience is going to remain incredibly relevant to consumers. And because of that, it's not so much that e-com, shall we say, is going to take over the world. It's that you're going to have a grain of the lines between channels. For example, right, if I'm outside of the mall and I go on my phone and I do a curbside pickup, what is that? Is that an in-store transaction? Is it an in-person transaction or is it online? Payments professionals would know, well, that's an e-commerce transaction. It was done via an an app or online. And that's factually correct. But the consumer experience is sort of a pseudo in-store experience. And because of that, merchants for the next two to three years are going to be focusing on what we call unified commerce. How do you not only offer all of these channels, but offer it in a completely unified fashion? And that means that merchants are going to need to concentrate on unifying their 
inventory management systems, their ERPs, their payment systems to be channel agnostic because the consumer is no longer going to expect sort of one flow or one sort of experience with their brands. They want to approach their brands from whatever they feel like and whatever device makes sense in the moment. And they expect the same experience across all those different channels. Okay. Care to get the crystal ball out and give us a shot at 10 years from now? (laughs) Yeah, I think 10 years from now, the distinction between online and in-store is just simply going to go away. Let's take the in-store example. Let's take a retailer or what have you. I think that there will still be devices, but I don't think that they will look very much like terminals do today, or at least the interactions with them won't be. For example, let's look at the trend line of the terminal. The screens keep on getting better. The screens keep on getting bigger. And there's more and more focus on touchscreens. Why is that? It's that way because these terminals are effectively becoming multimedia devices. They're becoming devices in which you can do a myriad of different flows from scanning QR codes to signing up with an email or a phone number, what have you. I think in a 10-year time frame, you're going to see less of a focus on dipping a chip or something like that. You're going to see basically multimedia devices that are there to exchange information, but payments are simply going to become more seamless. And it's going to start using more and more technology from the e-commerce side in order to provide for these sort of in-person experiences. Sure. Do you think there's a day when you can basically walk in a store and walk out and not necessarily pay? And I'm using, you know, air quotes around the word pay. Yeah. I think what you're talking about, Greg, is basically the uberfication of payments, right? I think we almost take it for granted now what Uber did to the consumer and their expectations around payments. I mean, before Uber existed, you never would have thought that you would just get into a car, get out of the car, and funds would be taken from your account appropriately. Now, don't get me wrong, that requires a lot of trust in the brand for consumers to feel that way. But that's the trend line going forward. And I could point to, for example, the Amazon Go experience is another great example where the uberfication of payments is basically... If you can properly identify who someone is and what they have purchased, you don't necessarily need onerous interactions to do that. And today, it's quite onerous. You have to dip a card, tap a card, swipe a card, what have you, and these all have purposes. But as new technologies over time get better at identifying who a consumer is, and tap to pay is a really great step in a quicker interaction there, and identifying what they've purchased in the store, payments will go more and more into just simply, if we want to use today's language, card on file, right? As long as you can get that card on file and pull those funds, that's absolutely going to be the trend line going forward. And it's going to look like it does in the movies, right? Where you just tap your wrist or what have you, and the funds just simply come out of your account. And I think that already exists today. It's just going to be more around standardizing those technologies across all the merchants around the world. Sure, sure. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. Tell us about your journey to your role there as the president of North America. Yeah, so in my role as president of North America, I oversee our North America organization, which is about 250 folks and going strong. We have a diverse set of teams. It ranges from everything from sales and account management to ops, underwriting, legal, all the teams that it takes to to support the the agent proposition for our our merchants here. My background, however, is actually in product. So I come from a product fraud prevention background, having 
done fraud prevention product work at Google and Airbnb. I actually started in our headquarters in Amsterdam as Adjun's first product manager and, and focused on building out a product organization. But the interesting thing is, if, if you're focused on enterprise, which has traditionally been Adjun's bread and butter, product teams are very much part of that customer interaction. In fact, in my previous role the last few years, I clocked 120 plus flights a year, just going out and seeing our merchants and building with them. So that set a really good groundwork for me earlier this year in January to take on the North America role, which is a general management role in our organization here. Okay. What are some things you're passionate about? So maybe pick one work-related item and one non-work-related item. Okay. I'll go straight payments nerd on the work-related one and say, uh, I'm actually really interested in just the evolution of e-commerce technologies, in particular, the cross-section of different EMV co-specs and how they're going to change how payments works online over time. And specifically, I would be pointing to three different technologies, the 3D Secure 2 spec, network tokenization, and secure remote commerce, now known as Collect2Pay. I find this very interesting because if you take a big step back and look at e-commerce payments today, outside of the wallets, which have done a really exceptional job of sort of one-click enablement, and it runs the gamut from Apple Pay and Google Pay to Amazon Pay and what have you, If you look at most e-com interactions, it's pretty archaic. You're taking your card out of your wallet, you're punching in 16 digits, as well as your CUV expiration date, et cetera. And because we have this super, super sort of insecure element, which is the pan on the card, it makes a lot of e-commerce just very difficult from a fraud prevention standpoint to all sorts of things. And when you look at these three specs, 3DS2 for authentication, network token for an identifier that sort of never goes stale and always remains the same, and uh, secure remote commerce, which is an easy way to get someone to say, hey, I'm Brian, I know I have my card on file, here you go. That becomes a trend line over the next five to 10 years where we'll finally get the pan off the card. We'll finally get away from punching in these 16 digits. And I'm very closely watching as these three technologies evolve and as Agent invests in them with our merchants to really see e-commerce as a very, very different thing in the next five to 10 years. I personally find that very exciting. Okay. And what about on a personal level? On the personal side, I, I love travel. It actually, I, I just said, I, I did 120 plus flights the last couple of years, mostly to see our merchants, but then I got to see the world on top of that. And Interestingly enough, COVID has been a good opportunity to take a step back, appreciate spending a weekend at home and whatnot. That being said, I moved back to the States in January, bought a car, of course, and then uh, have uh, put on 15,000 miles on it in the last 10 or 11 months. So I, I just can't get the travel bug out of me. I always want to be someplace new. Okay. Has it been pretty painful not being able to jump on an airplane? It was the first few months, and then you look back and you ask yourself how you squeezed yourself into that seat for dozens of hours and and all of that. And it's going to be quite interesting to see how the world of travel changes, especially in a business context later. I mean, take a a quarterly business review, which is a chance to meet people in person. Uh, We do them all the time in our business, and they've all been happening virtually now. And I think we're going to do a lot of them in person, but I wonder how often we'll just lean on Zoom going forward to have some of these interactions. So I'm keen to see how how travel evolves after COVID. 
Yeah, yeah. I've read a good bit about the expectations there. It's kind of interesting. And I guess you guys play in that space. So one way or another, it's going to affect you no matter what happens, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're closely watching the dynamic of airlines and just the travel sector overall. The good news there is that there is eyesight on recovery in terms of overall volume across online travel agencies and airlines. We've actually released to the market data in terms of how how that's impacted our business. And it's had had actually a very minor impact in the grand scheme of things on our business. I do think the very interesting question in the long run is going to be on business travel. And I think that has less to do with the impact on payment providers and agent and more to do with the bottom line of the airline since that's such a lucrative segment for them. Sure, absolutely. Well, you mentioned this earlier about not getting a degree in payments and none of us have, you're right. And it's interesting, when I started in this industry 15 years ago, I sort of just fell into payments. It wasn't like I seeked it out, it just happened to happen. And I think the difference today is that kids in college can take fintech courses, they can learn about the industry, and I think some of them look at it as a career opportunity. And it's so much different today with all of the investment in the industry and you know how fintech and technology and payments has all become sort of a, a sexy place to work. So what advice would you give someone coming out of college today if they wanted a career in payments? What would you tell them to do? Yeah, it's a great question. I never thought I would see the day when fintech is a sexy space to be in, but I would agree completely. I think in fintech is such a wide area, right? You've got merchant-facing payment processing, which is Agin's business, all the way to consumer-facing neobanks and everything in between. There's a lot going on in this area. If I were talking to someone with a burgeoning career in fintech, I would say two things. First and foremost, be data-driven. It's so rare that you can be in a business where the data just speaks for itself, right? You can actually look and see what is the consumer doing? How are they behaving? What are their preferences? And this isn't just the case in e-commerce. Don't get me wrong. It's easier to dive into the data and the e-commerce side of things, but it's universal across all of these different experiences. So first and foremost, getting good at looking at data, understanding data, and taking action based off of that. I think is really crucial to anybody with a career in fintech. Next to that, and to a certain extent tangentially related, I would say understand your bias. Payments and just finance in general is a highly cultural thing. Americans, you know, I've got four or five credit cards in my wallet. I would never hesitate to use any of them. A German is going to highly prefer paying with cash or even online, maybe doing a bank transfer. It's very common in Brazil that you would actually print out a barcode and then go pay in cash at a convenience store down the street. In China, no one takes out a card out of their wallet to pay. They're going to scan a QR code and pay with Alipay and WeChat Pay. And even outside of payments, understand that there's broad demographical and cultural differences between consumers and how they behave in terms of how they see exchanging money between people and their comfort with doing that in a digital way to their comfort level with loans and alternative forms of credit like installments, right? My suggestion would be really understand that you come at finance with a certain bias depending on your background. And there are consumers out there that are going to see it entirely differently. And the sooner that you can understand that different people want to interact with money in very different ways, the sooner you're going to then create products and solutions that are more diverse and offer different experiences to different consumers based on their preferences. And going back to the original point, the data should show that. 
data can help you get over those personal biases and make sure to build a product that has more wide-reaching appeal across consumers. Yeah, I think that's some great advice. Well, Brian, we've covered a lot of topics so far uh, about you, about the company, about the industry. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? The only thing that I would note here, right, is that we're at an inflection moment. And I think when it comes to COVID and when it comes to how the world is doing right now, I think we need to take a big step back and remind ourselves that it's not all about business. It's not all about payments. We should be concentrating on being there for our families, concentrating on the health of our people and getting solutions out there. That goes without saying. But the one thing that I would say next to that is when we do then put our business context onto the overall situation, I think it's really worth taking a step back and looking at 2020 and merchants in particular are going to be asking themselves, okay, we got through this, but what does this mean now? And I think at the end of the day, this trend for the next five to 10 years of channels merging and graying and digital enablement happening is only going to speed up over time. So my one closing thought and suggestion would be for folks to take a reflective moment, look back and ask ourselves how this is going to change the world, because it certainly is. And payments is going to have a small piece of that overall change around the world. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's great, Brian. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for being on the show. I know your time is very valuable. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 